said that we heard the clap of the hand like three times. And then they say, jump. And then I jump, that jump, and we throw the bicycle. Jump from the bicycle up the road and just ran, you know. And I don't know, I just follow him, you know. Run, run, run into the bushes, you know. It's like wooded area, you know. Just like jump, go. And it was so dark, I just blindly follow him. You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. If you listened to episode three, you'll remember that my sister Joanne was very curious about my father and my brother Steve's journey because we grew up not really understanding the details of it. I had the opportunity to sit down with my brother Steve. This is a story of a young teenage boy, only 14 at the fall of Saigon. He grew up in a life where everything was given to him, and overnight, everything was taken away. A young boy who was forced to become a man, to provide for his family, helping to feed his younger siblings, helping his parents earn money. As the oldest child of seven, he quickly felt the burden. Steve was born in 1961 in Nhung, a coastal city in central Vietnam. He grew up in a big two-story home, tended by a house full of maids and cooks. He was born during a time when my parents were very wealthy and prominent in society. My father was the director of a French academy for primary and secondary schools. My mother was one of 12 children, born in a well-known family and the daughter of a high-ranking officer in the former French Vietnamese army. She was young, beautiful, well-educated, and a sharp businesswoman. All of that disappeared overnight in March 1975, when my family had to evacuate our home in Da Nang, just a month before the fall of Saigon. In episode two, I shared that pivotal moment in the history of the war that left the lives of many Vietnamese in a state of uncertainty. I asked Steve, what life was like after the war had ended. When the communists took over Nha Trang, we didn't run at all because I remember mom, uh, mom and dad say, we already ran from Da Nang to Nha Trang. Mm-hmm. And this is it. There's no way you can run it. Just stay here. And they say, I'm not a military man anyway. I'm not a soldier anyway. I'm just a teacher. We still thought that, hey, I'm just a teacher. No big deal. You know, I'm not a soldier. I'm not even a, a police officer. Mm-hmm. Like so he what, was saying, I'm not associated with the yeah, Southern Army. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I remember when they actually took over. Mm-hmm. I went out and, you know, as a young boy, clap my hand, you know, say, yeah, 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 things like that. Mm-hmm. Because, hey, their faces look like my face, mm-hmm. you know. So, hey, why? You know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they rolled the tank to the street. You know, all the young faces, the soldiers, they are very young. I remember that. They're very young. When my family evacuated Da Nang, we went to live with my maternal grandmother in Nha Chang, who was living in a two-story home another grand house that my grandfather had owned. It wasn't long before the communists came and took that house from us and forced us to move. The, the, the government 
took our house and my white house because they say it was too big for the family. So they want to use this as one of the local government building, something mm-hmm. like that. They say if you have if you don't have anywhere to go, we can put you in the what the so called Kuntemai is up in the mountain that you have to build the houses by yourself. But before you do before you build the houses up there you have to like use your bare hand with a few, you know, equipment to uh make a guide data. I mean, to clear the land, basically. But uh, I think that's I know we have the Nyapanoi. We ended up moving to the countryside of Nyachang, away from the city. Our house, oh no, but no, it's house, mm-hmm. was, according to mom, mm-hmm. that's mom's money to mm-hmm. build it. Mm-hmm. long time ago right. for them to leave. When you were then living in Benoit's house, I mean, what do we do for food and stuff? And what about, like, money? My family now had to learn to become farmers. They had moved to the countryside, living in a small cottage with a small plot of land. It's a really hard labor job. It's not easy. It's mm-hmm. especially for us, mm-hmm. you know. We not to get used to this thing. We never did anything with us. Like, like I say, we have a maid in the house. We live in the city. We never do this thing. We have no idea. So dad had to learn a lot, you know, from local people, how to make rice, how to, how to, how to grow it, you know, how to sort of fertilize it, you know, how to decay uh, buffalo or a cow. Mm-hmm. One or two, uh, you have to direct them, and you will be behind them with uh, some kind of equipment to stir up the land. So you have to learn all that too. Dad have to learn all that. Mm-hmm. Of course, he doesn't know all this, so you have to learn that. Okay, what about mom? What was mom? Oh, mom is doing all kind of thing. You know, see, uh, hang out in the city every day. From where we live to Nyetang, it's only five kilometers, mm-hmm. but it seems like so far because... you didn't have a car. Exactly. You don't have anything. You have to walk there. So it seemed like... Yeah, mom was in the... Basically, mom in this open market all day long to buy things and resell them back to gain a small profit. So depend on what day, how many, I mean, how much she make each day, she can buy a small meat, piece of meat to bring back. We didn't buy any vegetable because we, we grew our own vegetable in the in the countryside. We just buy meat, that's important. We, we don't have meat and fish. I remember I did some fishing, but for some reason, there's no fish in that river in front of <laughs> our house. I don't know. It's rarely to catch it. And Dad did some uh, fishing as well at night. So when did the government start doing the whole re-education camp and stuff? It just few months later, we live in the countryside. Mm-hmm. So the way they communicate is they have one person. They say, okay, whoever, I mean, the former soldier of the South Republic mm-hmm. have to go to that local government thingy to report. Mm-hmm. Your name, your age, your rank. Mm-hmm your branches, so that we can know what you're capable of, so that we can find a job for you, or so that you know that we know that what your skills are, things like that. Mm-hmm. Bad one, no, he was in the military. 
not only that, he's a captain. And not just a regular captain, he's the, what you call it, Green Beret over mm-hmm. here. I think a few days later, mom said, oh my God, I'm doing that. They took them like more than a week now. Mm-hmm. And we haven't heard anything. My uncle, who registered himself to what he thought was a routine skills assessment, disappeared. And then we start asking around the neighborhood and the local people, this, yeah, same as my husband. It's more than a week now. Nobody know a thing. And then from that time, you know, it's forever. Nobody know where they're going. Eventually, you know, about six months or seven months later, people start to realize that they all were in prison, what the so-called re-education camp. <laughs> I remember this is one of the math problems. Uh, one day, one North Vietnamese soldier shoot one helicopter. Then in a week, how many helicopters did that North Vietnamese soldier shoot? <laughs> That's typical math problem. <laughs> it's all like that. <laughs> it's all about bad American, bad South Vietnamese soldier. It's all about that. So what was school like? School, like, you study just like you studied before. They have, it's normal. It's just they add an additional course. Mm-hmm. They call it political course. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's not political course. It's the mm-hmm. math learning course, mm-hmm. the communist course. And you have to pass that course. It doesn't matter if you are a student. If you don't pass that course, you don't pass. But then, later on, if you graduate from, you know, high school or college, mm-hmm. If you in the blacklist, mm-hmm. meaning your grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, your father, your grandfather were in the South Vietnamese military before. You wouldn't get into school. You wouldn't do anything. Yeah. That's why I drop out at the ninth grade. Yeah, because I say, what do I you study for? What's I the mean, point? your 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 uncle was in the military. Your grandfather is a kind of high-ranking officer for the French. Mm-hmm. What's the point? When I drop out, I'm kind of full-time now, mm-hmm. full-time laborer. So at that time, I start uh, go up to the mountain, make a firewood to carry it down and sell to people, to for people to make firewood. I did that for a while, and then I changed to uh, make a charcoal, because charcoal is make more money. The way it's make charcoal is you have to build, you build like a kind of igloo uh, figure, and inside it, you put all the... Uh, tree that you jacka, uh, you cut all the tree that you found around you or go somewhere and find it, mm-hmm. put it in there and put the leaf, green leaf as well as the dry leaf and then you burn it. It's just small hole to let the air get in and let the, uh, let the oxygen get in enough so slowly burn so you have to take time, not a day work, mm-hmm. a week work. So it was charcoal in demand? Where did you sell it? Lam Songro? Lam Songro, mom carried out to a city to sell it. Back then, the electricity mm-hmm. is very expensive, mm-hmm. if you will. When the communists took over, it's like they changed everything. They say, like, electric is like a luxury. So in the city, they have to cut the electricity every night. So that you have like two, three hours for it. Mm-hmm. They usually use firewood or charcoal to cook. So you were making them, mom would take it into the yeah. city and sell it? 
And was that more money? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. more money than firewood. Yeah. But uh, I started out with the firewood first. Right. No, no, no. Do you remember when you escaped? How many times did you try? Oh, I was lucky. I tried it one time, one time. Really, just like that. So tell me about that. I knew that we we're going to go. We we're going to escape. Mm -hmm. I know that. How? I don't know the detail mm -hmm. because of the, the midnight conversation between mom and dad mm -hmm. about escaping. Mm -hmm. But in detail, I don't know. Know nothing about detail. So did you hear those conversations for a while or was it the night before? No, no. Okay. Yeah, I know that I'm going to go someday. Do you remember at this time how old were you? To be 16 to 17. So you knew that the escape was being planned. Mm -hmm. Mom and Dad were talking about it. Right. right? Were you excited? Were you scared? Like, how no. were you feeling? Actually, I'm excited. So every time I'm walking down the field or up in the mountain, I keep thinking about that. Give me more energy to work. Say, mm -hmm. so, hey, this is you not forever. No. When you like the, the lowest people in society, you do everything for survival. You're not scared. There's no such thing called scared. And Betty, I'm Danny. How amazing. How old is he? Danny, my fourth brother, was eight years old. Selling cigarette on the train. It's not a regular train. He run on the top of the, the car. You know how dangerous that is yeah. when the train's moving? And of course, he doesn't buy ticket. He jump in. When the train from the station coming out, they start slowly, right? Eventually going fast, but they start slowly. When they about to get out of the station fully, they start running fast. Mm -hmm. That's how they jump in. And Bear was one of those guys. Jump in without ticket. And you don't scare. Yeah. You make anything to, to, to feed your mind, mm -hmm. you don't scare. And one day, you know, how to escape? Okay. One day in the morning, they asked me, go with me to Nyata. I didn't ask. I didn't know that this is the day we escape. I just thought that, hey, maybe we go to Nyata and do something. So we biked to Nyata, keep biking to the, uh, it's not a bus station, you know, it's the center where all the buses park there. So you have to buy a ticket mm -hmm. to go to whatever, go to center and we eat, we have lunch there. I remember we get there around noon, something like that, and we eat lunch there. And after lunch, we still sit there. And say, why? Why we sit there and do nothing for a few hours? I would say almost half day until the sunset went down. And then we start biking again. We start biking into the countryside and it's so dark and it getting darker and darker. I said, I, now I know we, 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 but I still don't know the, the plan. Biking at night, so dark, keep biking on the uh, highway. Mm. Highway 1, which is the main road. Again, this is so dark, okay? Keep biking on highway number 1. All of a sudden, we heard the clap of the hand, like three times. And then they say, jump. And then I jump, that jump, and we throw the bicycle. You know, jump from the bicycle. But where? Into off the road? Off the road, and just ran, you know. And I don't know, I just follow him, you know. Mm -hmm. Run, run, run into the bushes. You know, it's like wooded area, you know. Just like jump, go. And it was so dark. I just blindly follow him. I have no clue. But I know that we're about to escape. I don't remember how long we've been walking all night until we're in until we reached the shoreline, the, uh, the mm. coastal line. 
and all of a sudden, a lot of people coming out from all the bushes, all the wooded, oh. you know, to the shoreline. And then we start looking uh, to dig the sand on the beach out, and they say we have to find, we have to find the uh, gasoline, the oil. They buried it in the They sand. buried the oil tank in the sand, but not in one place, in several places. So we have to find it. For example, we need 20 cans. I, at that time, I didn't know that we found only 10 cans. We all swim out to the small boat. I don't know how many, how, how long I swam. We jump into the boat and we start leaving at night. There were 35 people that were on the small wooden fishing boat. Four men on the boat, including my dad. The rest were women and children. As soon as they got out into the middle of the sea, my dad said everyone started to get seasick. The seas was much rougher than they had imagined. It was up to my dad and another 16-year-old boy who happened to be the son of the owner of the boat. The boy knew how to steer the boat, and my dad had a compass and a map. The fate of 33 people were in their hands. After one day and one night, they started to run out of gas. A sea storm had approached, and they were wasting even more gas trying to gain control of the boat. The young boy steering the boat said, Sir, if we go against the waves and storm, our small boat will break. We will never make it. At that point, my dad thought this was the end of them. He closed his eyes and prayed to God. I don't ask a miracle. I ask one idea, one idea how to save the boat. And it dawned on him. He decided to change course, and instead of heading to the Philippines, they needed to head to Indonesia. He told the boy to turn the boat 90 degrees to ride with the storm so the boat could get pushed along Indonesia. It worked. They rode along for hundreds of kilometers all night without wasting their gas. The next morning, they saw a big ship. A Taiwanese ship. They signaled for help and the ship came towards them and gave them a little food, water, and gas. But they said that was all they could do, that their government does not allow them to bring refugees back. They offered to help with a plan they were heading to sea for five days to fish. On their way back, they would tow the refugee boat as close as they could to Taiwan. Once they were close enough to the island, they would cut ties so that it would not look like the two were connected, and my dad and the rest were on their own. But this meant that the boat needed to stay afloat for five days, waiting in the same spot. After days of just floating, riding out the rainstorms, my dad decided that this didn't make sense, that if another big storm came suddenly, their boat would not survive. They needed to keep moving. Dad decided to continue taking the boat towards Indonesia. He has never sailed a boat before and really had no idea. But based on the map, he estimated it would take them almost four days. 
They started to ration their food down to two spoons of rice per person per day. Miracle would have it, they made it to Indonesia. But the authorities could only take them in for one night. They gave them food, water, and a place to sleep, and the next morning put them back in the boat. They said, I'm sorry, but we are at capacity, and our government will not allow us to take in any more refugees. The war had ended four years ago. By 1978, over 100,000 Vietnamese boat people had arrived in first asylum countries. But by 1979, which is the year my brother and dad left, the numbers had drastically climbed and neighboring countries resorted to pushing boats away from their coastlines. Boat pushback became a routine and thousands of Vietnamese may have perished at sea as a result. It has been over 14 days since they left Vietnam. This time, they decided to go towards Malaysia. After another few days at sea, riding once again angry storms, they eventually found themselves near Malaysia, but once again was denied refuge. They gave my dad some food, water, and gas, and again, their boat was pushed back out, skimming the Malaysian border but staying within the international waters. My dad describes the citizens of Malaysia as warm-hearted and compassionate. He said several boats operated by local fishermen would sail near them and throw fruit and water overboard. That's what kept them alive, floating for another seven to 10 days. He said he lost track. Until one day, a fishing boat came by and threw a note overboard. The note said, you need to figure out how to sink your ship. So officials are forced to rescue you. Otherwise, by tomorrow, they will come out and tow you even further from our borders. That night, my dad gathered the men on the boat. He said, we need to sink this boat. Find whatever floating device we have on this boat. Give it to the women and children so they have something to hold on to. And the men and boys that are old enough, we just need to keep swimming until they come for us. And then we start, you know, to use all our equipment to dig the boat, to make a small hole, to let the water come in. Yeah, within minutes, the boat starts sinking, mm-hmm. and we like, ah, help, help, help. And remember, all the coast guards surround us, they can see so you. they can see you, you know, so they have no choice, they have to save us. You know, at night, it's so dark in the ocean, if you see a little light, that means some kind of a boat or land. But when you see it, and then it becomes brighter and brighter, and then you know it was a boat. But then when it comes like on your left, all of a sudden disappear again. And you know that the boat just passing by. Mm-hmm. But remember, small light means it's so far away. You know, yeah, you see like that. It's like a little hope. Sometimes a tiny hope pop in and pop out and disappear. And in 1979, when the Vietnamese boat people started escaping from Vietnam, 
desperate to live lives of freedom. And they would arrive at islands in Southeast Asia and be pushed back out to sea because no country in the world, including the United States of America, was accepting any more refugees. We had done our part. And to his everlasting credit, Governor Ray wrote to President Carter and said, Iowa will double the number of refugees from Vietnam that we have already accepted if you, Mr. President, will only reopen America's doors. And he went to Washington with a Democratic governor, another Republican governor, and lobbied until in 1979 at the Boat People Conference in Geneva, the United States announced it would take 168,000 refugees from Indochina a year. That was Ambassador Quinn, the former ambassador of Cambodia. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for listening to Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. If you would like to share your refugee story on our podcast, please contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.